Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on The New Aleph, Soma begins handing out arrest lists to the mayors of Pan's main cities. Aramis and Paul's group found out Kaze cult members are trying to catch groups like theirs trying to escape the cities. And now, Chapter 17, Part 2 of The New Aleph. I've been meaning to ask. Aramis looked at Paul after he said that, then back at the crooked railroad and sighed. She tried not to be loud enough for him to hear her. At least it wasn't raining anymore. Aramis had trail running shoes on, so she didn't slide and slip around. But they weren't waterproof and always soaked through in the rain. The abandoned railroad, with the steel tracks and stakes rusting away in some places, was uneven and slippery, and erosion had pushed the ties partway down the hillside they had once snaked alongside. But slick ties and mossy gravel were better than mud. Some of the bridges had even been stable enough to walk across. Meanwhile, Aramis had been avoiding talking to Paul for most of the day. Partly because he'd been in a nasty mood all last evening and this morning. It had been raining a lot, and he wasn't used to living outdoors, even though he really didn't have to do much. Aramis and all the others from the Pravid communes were taking care of most of the housekeeping, at least the organizing of it, setting up and tearing down the tents, preparing and cooking the food, making sure animals didn't get into the supplies, all normal parts of life in the communes, as were the very, very cold nights. Paul wasn't exactly complaining, at least not audibly, but his presence was little more than a dark cloud. She also didn't like looking at him because it reminded her that he was going to be gone forever in a few days. She cleared her throat. Uh, what have you been meaning to ask? I realize you never said what your opinion is about the soul offenders. Well, I mean, what Aleph Dan is doing about them. Aramis snorted. My opinion is complicated. Paul looked around at heavy evergreen branches hanging down over them and thick hedges of ferns lining the trail, at Liamhan walking lazily alongside the ties, and the three dozen people walking in front of them and the two dozen walking behind. He laughed. We have time. Aramis rubbed the back of her neck, then placed a stray strand of hair back behind her ear. It took a moment of concentration before she could answer, during which she stuffed her hands in her jacket pockets and walked with her back straight and her eyes straight forward. It's weird. You've got murder mixed in with white-collar crime. I guess whoever made the original laws made it a capital offense, so there wouldn't be any preference shown to the upper-class people who might try and commit the crimes. Instead of making it exile or life in servitude or some fine, they made sure the default Punishment was the most severe. Do you think Dan is really going to have everyone executed? From all the rumors floating around, she doesn't really care about doing anything different to someone who just bought Soul Space without knowing where it came from, or someone who paid to have someone murdered to get it. Aramis turned to face Paul. Those are just the fear-mongering rants of all the talk radio guys who don't like her. Which is almost all of them. Aramis grumbled. 
but we don't know. All we have are second, third, and fourth-hand bits of details trickled down from Dan's people and whatever crazy sources, radio shows, or zines find. She hasn't made any public appearances. She hasn't released any official documents to the public. She might as well not even exist. I'd probably be even more likely to think that if I hadn't felt the explosion that came from the Alanessa Citadel. It could just be some big stunt the Alephs are pulling, I guess. It could be, but, well... Aramis could feel Paul looking at her. She sighed. I talked with Vicky. She was there at the trial, and she knew Dan before all this started. Paul's face hardened at the mention of the mysterious Aleph woman they'd brought along. How did you even find her? Aramis took her hands out of her pockets and pulled on her elbows to stretch out her shoulders. Gail. She found her and Brett up there when she was looting the wreckage after Dan left. She was in trouble with the Prometheus subassembly for some reason. So, she's stuck here. Aramis looked up at the sky as the clouds parted just enough to show some blue. She took in a deep breath, enjoying seeing a bit of her element's color for a moment. Something Paul wasn't responsible for. But anyway... The short answer is that I don't know if I agree with what Dan is doing. It all depends on how she does it. I mean, I don't think I agree with having a death penalty. For anything. But there should be some kind of deterrent or consequence. Paul sucked in a long breath through his nose and folded his arms. It shows that the Alephs have failed. That so many people have been able to do all this. They're still guilty for doing it. The people themselves, I mean. Paul's face turned hard. I don't think I have a problem with the death penalty. I just think only the people that knew they were killing people should be executed. Aramis kicked a rock that was in her path. It shot forward and ricocheted back and forth off the rusty rails to the right and left before hitting the back of Jules's boot. Aramis looked up from it and noticed that the people in front of them and behind them were now closer than they were before. They were eavesdropping. I keep thinking about the problem. She felt a temptation to become poetic come over her, now that she knew there was an audience. The tension between justice and revenge. Some might say that justice is just revenge carried out by the law, but I don't think so. Then what's the difference? Paul's shoulders relaxed a little. I'm not sure. I think justice requires that the punished and the punisher be held to the same standard. For me, that means the Punisher can't murder. Sure, you can make a thief give back restitution for whatever they stole. Same maybe for an arsonist or whatever. So in that case, the Punisher isn't stealing from the guilty. But a murderer can't pay back the life of the person they killed. So killing them doesn't really accomplish anything. Paul shook his head. I don't agree with that. It shows that there's a punishment matching the crime. But what about the person who has to do the executing? Aramis moved slightly closer to Paul and lowered her voice. They have to kill someone. So who does that? The sentencing judge? Some poor cop who draws the short straw? It's stupid. Paul looked upset by this, but Aramis wasn't sure what part of it was upsetting him. He scratched his head. You could have it done in a way so that it's not a person who kills them. Maybe... Push them off a waterfall? Someone has to push them. Leave them on a barge of ice out in the ocean? 
Someone has to put them on the barge. Paul frowned. Okay, those were dumb examples. But I, I see what you're saying. That's not really my point, I guess. So some people get their hands dirty during an execution. It's a high price, but it's preventative. You execute a murderer, and that deters other people from committing murder. I'm not saying it's fair. It's just that's the best way to do it. You're still taking a life. I can't see Seven wanting it that way. The death penalty is basically what the remnants say everyone who doesn't submit to him will face someday. Aramis rolled her eyes. Yeah, that's the name's place, though. To determine that stuff. And how many times in the remnants do people commit capital crimes but get second chances? Not many. But it happens, and that establishes a precedent. What about Kamel? We're eventually going to get around to talking about him. He may have done some terrible things in the past, but he turned his life around and helped people. He helped people the SSG had long given up on. The name forgave him and transformed him. Execution won't do either for anyone. Well, maybe that's the name's place too, to forgive. No, that's our responsibility, as his followers. Paul let out a heavy breath. Well... Camille's not really a good example anyway, because he turned himself in. He took the mercy offered to him. We're not talking about people like that. We're talking about people trying to hide or run away. Those people have to face the consequences. If they aren't punished, then what reason do people have to not murder whenever it benefits them? Aramis and Paul walked in silence a moment. Aramis knew Paul was watching her to see if she would reply. When she didn't, he softened his voice. It sucks that executing someone involves making an innocent person take a life. I get that. Aramis kept her eyes on the train tracks. Everyone has to work to remain just in everything they do. I don't think they can put that on hold for civic duty like an execution. I don't think it's an acceptable compromise. You wouldn't kill an enemy to protect your home? Aramis snorted humorlessly. She found Paul's use of buzzwords annoying and trite, but she also knew that not everybody saw those words that way. Enemy, home, duty. They were words tied up closely with the fog blocking her from her memories surrounding her suicide. They made her angry. Paul pushed a little more. Would you refuse to kill someone to protect a family member? I don't know. I killed myself, and I didn't enjoy doing it or having it done to me. I'm not really interested in doing it to someone else. Paul folded his arms, hugging himself for a silent moment. Aramis was upset that she'd made Paul upset. I know. I'm using allegorical information to cheat the argument. Well, it's not like it's an easy topic to figure out. If anything, though... He went silent again. A crowd was growing around them as more people both caught up and fell back so that they could be close enough to hear. They were walking along on both sides of the railroad now, forcing Leomhan to move to rougher, steeper terrain and to navigate around trees. She'd occasionally slip on some mud and grumble. But Vicky and her friends were still way out in the front, talking with Milton and Aubrey. Aramis lowered her voice. What? Paul leaned over next to her ear. He got close enough that, as he spoke, Aramis could feel the warmth of his breath, sending tingling up and down her back, 
and making the forest explode into thousands of shades of green. It's wrong to smuggle soul offenders out with us. Aramis turned her head toward him. Their faces were only centimeters apart. Aramis folded her arms and picked up her pace to give herself a little more room. I don't have time to screen everyone who comes to me for help. But you screened to make sure they weren't going to rat you out to the police. Not really. Paul again lowered his voice. You said you could tell. You already know that Vicky's friends are soul offenders. I'm not leaving them behind because I have some hunch. The way Dan is doing this is wrong, but her intentions are right. Every time someone talks to you about it, you always almost admit that. That's what you think, but you seem afraid to say it. You don't have to smuggle murderers out of pan to prove that you're not like Dan. Why would I think... Aramis leaned in close to Paul. I need to talk to you. She took off, away from the railroad and going downhill. She heard Paul follow. Where are we? He mumbled as they weaved around trees and finally came to a creek, probably one of the Times tributaries. Aramis stopped right on the smooth, slippery rocks of the bank. She turned to Paul as he stopped next to her. We need Vicky. She and Brett are highly trained in Kesho martial arts. Aleph's have to be. Without them, we just have me, Aubrey, and Milton who have any decent fighting skills. Those are not good odds when we're out here in the wilderness with all the world going completely crazy. And I'm sorry, but I don't care what anyone who's following us did before they came to us. Do you know how old Milton and Aubrey are? Paul looked at the rocks under his feet. You can't pick and choose. You either forgive everyone or you forgive no one. Do you know why else I need Vicky? Paul shook his head. Aramis pointed at herself, and then at Paul, and then back at herself. Our bond is broken. I know you want to go to Prometheus, but I'm going to stay here and try to do something. Why would you want to stay here? I thought you wanted to get away from Dan. I never wanted to leave Pan. I just wanted to get the people she was terrorizing away from her. Maybe just so I can know I help someone. Paul stuck his hands in his pockets and looked down at the creek. I was kind of hoping to figure out a way to have you come with me. And you haven't actually answered my question yet. Which question? Paul smiled, still looking at the water. Why you want to stay in Pan? I did, though. I said I want to help people. Maybe through telling Aleph Dan that she doesn't understand what she's doing. You're serious? How? It's not a plan yet. I, I have this overwhelming, horrible feeling. Like I understand what Dan is thinking, but no one else does. So no one is able to tell her that what she's doing is wrong. They stood there with just the sound of the bubbling creek. Paul sighed. Why do you think our bond is broken? Because we're a mess. Paul smiled at her. Aramis, you're one of the best friends I've ever had. Have you had any of the idea the kind of horrible arguments I've had with Susie? This is nothing, trust me. I get why you want to stay back here. But that doesn't mean we won't still be friends after I'm gone, even if we disagree about some stuff. Aramis clenched a fist. She had a yearning suddenly rise up in her to ask Paul to stay here with her. But it didn't bring any color, just malaise. 
I know how the bond works, and it's not working. She turned and walked back up to the train tracks. Hey guys, so this is your last chance to send in questions for the recap episode. I'll be joining up with the Don't Panic radio show guys again, so it should be pretty great. Sending in a question or comment is a great way to be part of the crossover magic. So send them in. As always, you can find me at most of the things at A. William Wright. And as Steve over at Don't Panic says, not the William Wright, just A. William Wright. Anyway, let's get back to the story. There were definite perks to a floating house. Great view to wake up to in the morning without the ugly roofs with their rusty air conditioners to look at, which normally came with living somewhere high off the ground. And the ground could stay wild and green in nearly every direction. Nathan took all this in as he looked out the window of the guest room of Jin's house and sipped his coffee. It had been constant discussion and negotiation and questions with Mr. Jin since he'd arrived, so it had been easiest just to have Nathan stay here. Nathan had been paying Jin back in information, which created a frustrating tightrope walk because Nathan didn't want to give away anything that would make Jin figure out who he actually was. In fact, it had really been Jin giving the most information, through Nathan acting stupid. Fortunately, it wasn't that unusual for some Alephs to not really know much about other Alephs, how things were run, or anything about current assembly policy. There were Alephs placed in key positions in governments everywhere, including hole-in-the-wall towns on the outskirts of major cities. Jin had assumed this about Nathan, and Nathan hadn't denied it. Eventually, though, he was going to have to tell the truth. Hey, uh, I need to talk to you about something. Nathan turned around to see Mr. Jin standing right behind him with his hands behind his back. He had a tired but mostly blank expression that didn't match the frustrated tone of his voice. Nathan frowned. About what? There's a bit of a problem. One of our people found this. Jin held up a small piece of paper, a flyer with a symbol on the top that was eight diamonds surrounded by a circle. Below that was what looked like a dot matrix drawing of Nathan. Then the details. Dangerous Aleph. Multiple aliases, including Nathan. Apprehend alive at all costs. Do not talk to him. Deliver to cell overseer. Reward. Free agent deadbeat pistol. Nathan studied the drawing of himself. He had an oddly blank expression. Not one he would probably ever have in real life. What's a deadbeat pistol? Jin's eyebrows shot up. Something very bad. They're worth a fortune, but they're usually linked to an Aleph's key, meaning the key can recall the pistol at any time. A free agent one means the Aleph can't do that. That would make it worth at least ten times as much. Nathan grinned and turned just his eyes up at Jin. You going to turn me in? Jin slapped the flyer onto a dresser with a chuckle. Ha! Absolutely not. 
But some of my people may try. This is a Kaze cult flyer, and we've had a blood feud with them for decades. But a reward like this... Nathan picked the flyer up and stepped a couple paces away. Today's the day everybody starts getting arrested for soul space theft, right? Looks like she's trying to sneak me into the pile. Jin nodded. That woman is going around from city to city today, handing out arrest lists. Nathan folded up the flyer and stuck it in a back pocket. I think I'll intercept her later today. I've been putting off having a talk with her for long enough. And if people are handing these out, it's not exactly going to get easier for me to move around. I can send Akahiro to keep an eye on you. You can watch your back. That'd be great. Nathan turned to look out the window again, at a low hill covered in evergreen. How many do you think there are? It's going to take years to run them all through the courts. Jin laughed. Unless she puts out dead or alive bounties, that would save the continent millions in court costs. Nathan frowned. You think she will? I don't think she really has a choice. I will deny no one due process. Curator's mayor, Samuel Maxey, sighed and moved one stack of evidence to one corner of his desk, another stack to another corner, and another stack to another. It may be messy, but it's our only option. We're not going to have enough jail space to hold them all. They're already half-filled with people who turn themselves in to get the plea deal and are now waiting on bail hearings. At this rate, we're going to have to kick people out of the SSG barracks to get the extra jail space. You don't want that. Soma gestured at the list of names remaining sitting in the center of the mayor's desk. Why can't you simply pace out your arrest and trial schedules in order to avoid that? Soma hadn't even given the mayors the full lists yet. And the arrests would only be a temporary burden on each city's financial resources. Most offenders were wealthy, and Soma had authorized the cities to confiscate assets necessary to recover the costs of the arrests and trials, with the exception of immortals owned by the offenders. All those were to be set free immediately. The Kaze members in Hempstock had told Soma about the roving gangs of confiscation agents there, seizing all property the moment an offender had surrendered themselves. Soma realized she should have outlined the terms of recovering costs of arrests and trials more clearly to prevent that sort of abuse, but it wasn't like she had the means to keep them all accountable. Not yet, anyway. The cities would all end up becoming wealthier after this, for good or ill. At least, Hemstock's zeal was keeping them from making stupid excuses, like these here in Curator, to put out dead-or-alive bounties. Though she was suspicious they wouldn't bother asking permission if they decided they were going to do that. If we throw the poor out of the SSG facilities, many will end up as victims of soul dealers. Soma's eyes narrowed at Maxie's comment. He smiled and tapped the side of his wide nose. I haven't looked at all of your evidence, but from what I can tell, you're only arresting buyers. And probably administrators, since they're also buyers, usually. You're not going after the ones who round up the victims for easy harvesting. They're too poor to buy the space. Of course, Alephs wouldn't be the ones on the ground. 
they wouldn't be directly manipulating poor people to get them to the death camps outside the cities. They had other people to do that for them. Soma didn't need to let Mayor Maxi know this was her first time realizing this, though. One problem at a time. He shrugged. Now, it doesn't mean your actions won't help if you really do succeed at capturing all of the administrators. Only Alephs can actually harvest and distribute the space, as far as I understand it. Soma's face turned a little green. She wished she had made her first list fully focus on the most affluent offenders. In hopes of actually stopping the trade, Maxie continued, But even then, a lot of people may die. Soma sighed. Then don't kick people out of the SSG housing. I may not have a choice if I... Soma glared at the man, making him shut up. He held up his hands and began absently glancing through one of the stacks of evidence. Soma had a feeling there was an elegant solution to this, but didn't know what it was yet. Still, there were some remedial options. Your administrative challenges are not justification for making selective murders legal. If the Alephs in the SSG chapters of your city, or in your corrections departments, do not have enough ink to rapidly build housing or jails, I will coordinate with the other Alephs to send you some. The mayor called out to her as she turned to leave the office. But creating buildings from keys and public areas where people can see is illegal. We can't do that. I have other cities to visit today, Mr. Mayor. You have your instructions. Aramis's back ached, but she knew it would feel better once she got warmed up. Normally, she wouldn't want to work out after an entire day of walking, but she had to stay sharp. With white-jacketed Kaze members possibly on their tail, and who knew what else waiting for them down the road, she had people to protect. The Time River, a vague band of flickering, reflected moonlight less than a stone's throw wide, was a couple steps in front of her. The camp was a couple kilometers up the foothills behind her, and the mountains rose up far above and beyond that. Aramis took in a lungful of icy night air. Breathing out, she took the starting stance for the ancient Japanese fighting form that Ignacio had made the foundation for his personal style of water manipulation. It was nicknamed the Prancing Horse, but Aramis had always hated that. It sounded silly and delicate, not at all powerful and heavy like it actually was. Ignacio could never remember the actual Japanese name, only that it translated to internal divided conflict. Which was a good description of Aramis's constant existence. She moved through the beginning of the form, stomping through the wide, heavy stances. Heavy and fluid in the legs, light and easy in the arms. Always facing the water, moving left and right. Left and right. Never moving forward, never moving back flow through the motions. She always did the form once before touching the water with it. Focus on the technique, focus on the timing. She finished the form and stopped, holding the pose, her back not aching anymore, but feeling tired. Now to move the water with it. Skill influencing the world. Influence the world. Sneak a few people out of the world who were scared. 
scared of the machinations of a woman willing to go to extremes to enforce the law and protect the poor. Aramis began the form again, heavier and harder this time, splitting her focus between her body and the river. She moved right, and the river stopped flowing left and rushed violently in sync with her. Mud and rocks of the bare riverbed glistened in the moonlight. She moved right again, and the water spread out wide and crashed into trees on both sides of the river. She concentrated on remaining calm and poised in the midst of the tumult. She moved left, and the water rushed back, refilling its bed and taking branches and clumps of evergreen needles with it. Was Aramis that different from Soma? Was the only difference the scope of their influence? Aramis could move a river and smuggle out 86 refugees plus Paul. Soma could burn a room full of Alephs and punish thousands that had murdered with impunity. Would either of their efforts actually help anyone? Would either really advance the cause of justice? Aramis stepped left again and the river doubled in speed. Then she punched forward and the river shoved its way to its side, away from Aramis, the ground groaning deeply as earth piled up at the apex of the new bend. Maybe Aramis wasn't really helping these 86 people, removing them from their lives, from their homes, to replace the known dangers with unknown ones. Of course, most of them had been planning on running away to the islands anyway, which wouldn't have been any better. So that insecurity was mere poetic self-loathing. She lifted herself up on one leg, arm raised, winding up to strike. The entire width of the river, plus a couple dozen meters in either direction, up and down stream, lifted into the air. She stomped hard and heavy to the right, and at the same moment, the earth itself shook with the impact of all the water slamming hard back down. The rumble echoed for a while. Black trees gave a lazy wave against a star-studded sky. Aramis relaxed and stood up straight, even though she wasn't yet done with the form. She had specks of mud all over, and her heart was pounding. She closed her eyes and drew in a long breath through her nose. She was not the same as Dan. Dan sought the shortest path between where she was and what she wanted. Cutting that path, seeking her justice at any cost, was going to leave the world bleeding. Countless innocent people would be hurt. The people Aramis was smuggling out were a tiny fragment of what was to come. Aramis continued the form in her head, in a way, but put most of her focus into the river. All of the water, as much as in the last move, gathered together into a huge scythe-like wall. Then it flashed into ice, the explosion of steam carrying all the heat away and bathing Aramis in shocking warmth. She heard dripping around her as the steam condensed on leaves and needles. She shook as the water condensed on her, but not because she was cold. She was angry at Paul. She was angry because there was a precedent in the remnants for not having to forgive everyone. But Aramis did not agree with those interpretations. The fact that people clung to those viewpoints made her angry, and that added to her anger at Paul for wanting her to leave people behind. 
She opened her eyes and the scythe shot forward into earth and trees, magnifying the movement her hands would have made in the form. Heavy, flowing, powerful. Then it turned to the side and slashed across, halving two dozen trees. In that split second, heart pounding in her ears, the upper halves of trees barely beginning their descent to the ground far below, Aramis made a decision. She screamed at the top of her lungs. Before the top tree halves touched the ground, she let the wall of ice break into a dozen smaller blades, and she tried to send each one spinning through a different tree half, or two, before it could land. Splinters exploded into the air like a rush of birds escaping into the sky as ice split and shattered the wood. Then she heaved and coughed, her body spent. She wanted to double over on her hands and knees, but refused to oblige her body that rest. Back straight, eyes focused on the carnage she'd caused the forest. She breathed in deep and slow as debris rained down around her and condensed water continued to drip. She didn't usually go this far in training, but tonight called for something different. She looked down at the river, continuing its unceasing business, despite her momentary interruptions, her mere pestering and annoyance to its conviction. She nodded at it, as if in agreement. I will protect everyone who comes to me for help. Thanks for listening. The recap episode will be posting early April, so stay tuned for the exact date. Part 1 of Chapter 18 will post not long after that. If you want to show your love for the podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. The World's a Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. Have a good one, everybody.